Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today? I'm the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Feeling sensational today, Dave. Oh. Thank you for asking. How about you? Oh, my battery is running low. <laughs> I, I forgot to plug in. So oh. a little bit of an emergency, but that's okay. We fight through it. Why is the battery low, Holly? Because, because why? Because we spent a hell of a long time talking to a fabulous former program director of some of our favorite alternative rock stations, Max Tolkoff. That's right. He spent a lot of his time at 91X in San Diego. He was also at FNX in Boston, and he actually was the PD for Indy 103.1, which I remember fondly. Didn't last a long time, but that was no fault of Max's. <laughs> we chatted with him for a long time today. For good reason, because he's got a lot of stories to tell. So before we do, Yamaran, how can they find additional information on Max? So we did talk for a long time and we're going to cut it down, but you will find outtakes from this chat with Max on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. And also we will post them on our social media at WDDIM Podcast. Subscribe, like, listen, watch. Love that all. And we're going to also talk about the songs that K-Rock played back in 1986. First, we'll learn a little bit about Max. Then we're going to get into the K-Rock songs from 1986, songs 60 to 51. Let's get right into it. This is Max Tolkoff on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. How are you feeling? It's good. I'm good. I just had, um, I had a smashed vertebrae a couple of years ago, right as the pandemic was happening. My left leg went south. And while everybody's worried about, you know, catching the disease, I'm entering the hospital system in LA with a bad spine in the middle of the pandemic. Oh, so it was kind of weird. I mean, the operation itself, it's not that big a deal. I was up and around, but it's just a very long healing process when you're dealing with the spine. I'm fine right now. I feel no pain. Everything's fine. But if I move around, that thing's going to be loose and then I'll be in trouble. All right. Speaking of pain, do you want to do a painful back to the future recreation of what the hell happened back in the 80s? Yes, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> Can't wait. Fantastic. Fantastic. Where did you get this list of songs? That's what I want to know. There's this thing called the internet, and uh, apparently you could find things on there. We've been doing these songs. We started in 1980. Originally, we just kind of blew through them. We're like, oh, yeah, we'll just kind of... Uh, you know, I talk about that song. It was just us. Yeah, yeah, we'll pick and choose songs that we want to talk about. And then we're, we came upon the uh, the notion, hey, why don't we ask people who might have been there? Okay, we'll go with your list and we'll see what happens. <laughs> right. uh, so, but, but that the K-Rock, this list is a list that was released by K-Rock at the end of every year in the 80s. Their top 106.7 songs. But no, nothing methodical we've come to understand. Mm. Nothing, you know, there's no testing. It was just random. But they did release it officially. By the way, I was in San Diego at 91X, so I wasn't really paying attention too much to what they were doing. 
But I will say this, by the mid-80s, our two playlists had diverged because, you know, we started out as being consulted by Rick Carroll, and this was in 1983. So we were running all the K-Rock music wheels in those early days, especially with Rick Carroll and all through the 80s. There was no, they didn't do any research. There was no official music research done at the station. They weren't owned by Infinity yet. They weren't owned by any sort of major corporation. But in those days, like me at 91X, we didn't have any idea whether the music was working or not. It was all big guess, and we were using K-Rock's playlists. But by the mid to late 80s, everything had smoothed out. We were doing our thing. We were consulted by Fred Jacobs at that point. Rick Carroll was our first consultant. That lasted for about a year and change because the numbers started to go down again after that first year of 83. Like, 84 was, was bad. We were, we were going back down. So management decided, all right, Rick Carroll's not our guy anymore. We're going to bring in Fred Jacobs, who hadn't had a consultancy yet. He was just a research guy. So Fred was brought in to do some focus groups and then also to do a music test later on. And it was at that point that we cleaned up and we did our first test and found out that a lot of the songs that you have on this list didn't test for shit. By the way, my favorite songs of music at the time was like, Nick Lowe, Dave Edmonds, Rockpile, big fan of that. Well, as soon as we put those songs into testing, the first music test we did at 91X, those songs, nobody knew, nobody liked them, nobody cared. So I had to, myself, take my babies and take them out of the format. I had to put them away. Essentially, I put them into lunar rotation because I knew, like a lot of other people, that those artists were a necessary part of the early new wave alternative, whatever you want. So I said to Fred, they have to be represented someplace. And he goes, all right, we'll stick them here and be lunar rotation. And you can put all those kind of songs in there that sort of fit that. So that's how he dealt with it. But that music test was a real eye opener because the songs that we didn't expect would do well, did well. And it was the first time that we were able to call this sort of unruly music list that had things like, you know, that secondary track from Aha, I saw at the bottom, which nobody played. Yeah, so songs like that, it was all just random. It was chaos. And we were not doing that down there. By the late 80s, or even the mid-80s, after we did that first music test, our playlist then became much more focused. You know, we put in things like the Stones, the Kinks, the Who, and the Beatles. And it freaked everybody out. But it was part of what we were doing to go, look, these guys were cutting edge during their time. These are the cutting edge artists of that day. So they belong in this sort of environment. And that's how we looked at it. But it was part of a whole restructuring. And K-Rock didn't do any of that. And they were still playing all these crazy tracks. And their numbers were going down in the late 80s. That's what happened to them. They relied too much on a lot of unknown, who cares, secondary tracks. In 1986, there was there a power suddenly came around and they were playing dance tracks and playing. Yeah. Uh, so there was rock, there was dance, and K-Rock was kind of in the middle and trying to decide which way to go. I think that might be a result of why they, they might have been uh, dipping a bit at that time. Yeah. There was an audience in Los Angeles and you could get away with that in L.A., but you can't in San Diego. Yeah. San Diego is really like a country, a military town that people didn't believe you could do a rock station like this in San Diego because it was so conservative. So people didn't think this kind of music would work down there, but of course it did. But we had to play the hits. Like, yeah, Bangles, Manic Monday, sure, we're going to play that. We're going to play Walk Like an Egyptian, but we're not going to go too far afield. 
because people really only cared about the main songs, you know, as they do at radio. If you're a super fan, then you go out and you buy the album, and then you pick your own secondary tracks because of what you like. We had to stick to the hits such as they were in 86. And by the way, in 86, there were maybe 11, 12 stations doing this full time mm-hmm. across the country. That's yeah. not a lot. So we had no chart. There was no section in the trades for this format. There was nothing. We were on our own. We didn't even have a map of the Americas. We were Americo Vespucci way back then trying to find the new world with no maps. And so that's what we had to go on. We had nothing to go on except for college radio and, you know, figuring it out for ourselves. We had a lot of success because we were doing music research. We were able to do that because we had the money for it. Nobody really did. Nobody did. Right. Exactly. Nobody had money. Yeah. Nobody had research. Nobody knew what they were doing. It was all just see in the pants. The Wild West. How did you end up in San Diego? So how, that let's go back to that. Like, where'd you start out and how did you end up? That, that, I was just, like, I was a regular mainstream rock guy. I had yeah. started uh, on Long Island, you know, it's like an intern. And then I went out West and I wound up in uh, Mammoth Lakes, California, a small mountain town, a ski town. Mm-hmm. That was really like my first on-air gig. And I worked six days a week in a ski town where I wanted to ski, but couldn't because I was on the air all day. I mean, my shift was 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., oh. six-hour shifts. Uh, and then the sixth day that I worked was Sunday morning, and I did the classical hour. We had a classical hour. Well, it was actually a classical four hours. You've got to imagine, it's a small mountain town. The station itself is in an old ski lodge, like one of those A-frame chalets. Mm-hmm. And the transmitter was on the branch of a tree somewhere in town. But it was a very good local station. It was totally free for it. And I walked in one day because I had just come from Lake Tahoe where I was meaning to ski and couldn't because the night before I lost all my money gambling. And I had never been in a casino before. And I went into Harris Lake Tahoe after I got a motel room. And my intention was to ski the next day and try out the local mountain. But that night I had time. So I walked over to the casino and I sat down at a blackjack table, not having ever played blackjack before because I was 19 years old. They didn't know that I wasn't 21. I didn't look you know, young or anything. So in 15 minutes, I lost all of my money, which was about 300 bucks. And I kept $20 back because I needed gas. And clearly there was no skiing the next day because I was broke. Why didn't you turn yourself in? Just say, Hey, I'm 19 years old. I should not be gambling. Give me my money back. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, I didn't know because I was only 19. (laughs) I knew nothing. Uh, short sidebar, later during the year and a half I was at Mammoth Lakes, I learned how to gamble properly. And Mammoth was close to Reno, so I would go back up occasionally, you know, make my money back in small amounts. But anyway, so I wind up in Mammoth Lakes the next day. I'm filling up my car with my last 20 bucks, little Honda Civic, and I'm listening to the local radio station. And I say to the gas station guy, hey, where's that coming from? He points to the safe frame across the street, and he goes, that's the station over there. <laughs> Behind the post office. I said, thanks. I drive across the street, park the car, get out. I walk in and there's a, like a lot, not even a lobby area. It looks just like a ski lodge, Mm -hmm. but there's some rooms. And in one of the rooms is the air studio. And there's a guy sitting in there. So I just walk in, I knock on the door. His golden retriever is laying on the floor, you know, blocking my entrance into the room, into the air studio. But I get him and I go, hey, I don't know if you need any help, but I have my third class radio operator's license and I'm looking for work. Got anything? He goes, well, tell you what, come in here, sit down and read the news for me, the five o'clock news. 
what? He goes, yeah, just read the news. And it's five minutes until five, okay? So he sits me down at the, at the board and he hands me some UPI wire copy where the ribbon hasn't been changed in about five years because nobody's gone down to LA to get new ribbon apparently. So I'm looking at something that looks like braille almost. I can barely read this copy. And he shows me what buttons to push. And he goes, here, just read the news and then go to the car. And he goes, okay. Five o'clock comes around. I read the news. I don't even know what's happening at the radio station. I read the news and then I go into commercials, whatever. And he comes in, he goes, wow, that was great. Okay. So um, when can you start? I don't know, right away. He goes, how about tomorrow? I said, sure. I don't even have a place to stay at this point. So he goes, yeah, come in tomorrow. Uh, I'll need you from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. <laughs> okay, that was it. That was the beginning. <laughs> I stayed there for about a year and a half. Uh, worked at Perry's Pizza when they couldn't pay us. Yes, yeah, so I worked at yeah. Perry's Pizza. You know the Perry's Pizza from <laughs> yeah. Fast Time? Yeah, Fun oh yeah, oh yeah. There were two locations at the time. However, Mammoth Lakes. Yeah. My job was uh, <laughs> distributing the cheese. I was the cheeser. So I stayed there for a while. And I met this guy who had been like a famous top 40 DJ in LA in the 60s. His name is Lee Duncan. I think he lives up in Seattle somewhere now. He's still around. This guy was total Los Angeles radio professional. And what he had done, he had burned out and eventually just wound up like hitting the West with his pickup truck and camper on it. And he would just go to all the ski resorts, like in Colorado and places, and he would work at the local radio station stay there for a little while, and then move on. So he worked in Mammoth, and he worked in Aspen at KSPN. So I met him in Mammoth, and he liked what I was doing, and he taught me so much stuff. It was amazing. He knew a guy in Colorado Springs. So eventually I wind up going from Mammoth to a station in Colorado Springs, KKFM, dominated the market. It was Colorado Springs in the 70s. So I stayed there, met another guy, and both of us wound up going to KDPI in Denver. And uh, that's where I was for a couple of years. That was total mainstream AOR, you know, 70s mm-hmm. rock. We did really well there as, as well. It was amazing. So it was John Bradley and people like Jeff Pollock, the consultant. He had worked at KVPI. All sorts of famous people came out of KVPI, good radio people. And a lot of them wound up at KBCO in Boulder. Then my girlfriend came out and we lived together in Denver. She wanted to go back to New York. We piled it all in, moved back to New York City and got jobs in advertising, both of us. But I still was maintaining a part-time air shift. I would go out to WRCN on Long Island, where I grew up, and work there one weekend. They were doing a rock foreman at that time. Other weekends, I would go down to MMR in Philadelphia, and I would do part-time there because my friend John Bradley, through Jeff Pollock, got hired at WMMR to be the production director. So I go down to do some weekend shifts, Jeff Pollock wants to know if I'd like to come to MMR and be the production director. And I said no, because I was fine and happy in New York, and I didn't really know if I wanted to do that. I moved to Philadelphia. So I stayed where I was. John went back to KBCO, and I was in advertising for like five years. Then I couldn't stay in New York anymore, so I called the PD I had worked for in Denver, Frank Felix, who's now consulting this rock station, 91X, at a top 40 station, the Mighty 690 in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And so I called every day for six months. Yeah. I think the, the long distance bills were horrible back then. Yeah. I called every day for six months until one day I got a hold of the PD again, uh, Jim Gilero, and he goes, Hey, my night guy just left. I got an opening if you want it. I said, Yes, I do. When can you get here? He knew I was in New York. I said, Give me two weeks 
and I'll be out there. And I had no car at the time. So all I had was my motorcycle and I had toured on it before I'd been cross country. So got rid of everything in New York, packed everything up, got everything I needed, hopped on the bike and went out to San Diego. That oh. trip is also a story in and of itself because it didn't take two weeks, it took three weeks. Because oh, I broke down in the middle of Navajo Indian territory. That's another story. We don't have time for that today. <laughs> but that's an amazing story. Sounds like a whole there's, podcast. There's, yeah, there's stuff that happened on that journey. It's almost unbelievable. Like in the midst of breaking down, I'll just tell you this one short thing. So I broke down in Navajo Indian Territory outside of Flagstaff. Managed to get a ride into town with a Navajo kid who didn't speak any English, but was a relative of the family that owned or ran the trading outpost that I walked to when my bike broke down. I get a ride to Flagstaff, and I'm waiting in Flagstaff for these motorcycle parts. And in the 70s, they're hard to find. So I rented a, a truck and was there for a few days. One night, I'm coming back from someplace, and I'm going through downtown Flagstaff, and they got it all blocked off. There's a fake rainstorm being, there's a deluge in the middle of Main Street. And you can tell that the, they're filming this big movie scene and the rain is coming down and all of a sudden order down there comes a car, looks like a station wagon that has been highly modified. And on the top is a rocking chair with a person in it. Oh, I know. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. So I watch this for a while and then I go back to the hotel and forget all about a year later, that movie comes out, and it was called National Lampoon's Vacation. And I had witnessed that scene where I forget who's in the rocking chair, and they put him on top of the car. Emma Jean Coca. Emma Jean Coca. Yep. <laughs> right. That was all in Flagstaff. And I sort of witnessed that while I was broke down waiting to go to San Diego. Just little stupid shit like that. It was like crazy. But anyway, so I get there, and we're at AOR station. So they had hired me to do an AOR shift at night. And so in August of 1982, that's what we were. We didn't change until six months later in 83. So I was just hired as an ordinary nighttime job at 91X when it was an AOR station. Having some fun talking with Max Tolkoff, but the time has come to take a break, and that's what we're going to do. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with our guest, Max Tolkoff, and counting down the songs that K-Rock played back in 1986, number 60 to 51. Were you a fan of this music? You had an AOR background and, you know, you liked yeah. rock. And did you no. know this music so, so at all? So here's the funny thing. Listen, in New York, I would walk to work every day. I was only 27 blocks away on the Upper East Side. And I was listening to the radio. I bought one of those Sony, an early Sony radio Walkman. Not a tape Walkman, but like a radio Walkman. Mm-hmm. So I could listen to NEW as I walked to and from work. And NEW in New York was the progressive FM alt station. You would hear B-52s on NEW, but you would hear them into or out of Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. So they were like a real mix. At the time, they were trying to walk this line. They were trying to be a new music station, but also not give up the classic. And so I would hear things like Squeeze on NEW. And this is all before WPIX in New York. For one brief moment, for about nine months, flipped to all alternatives which gave NEW nightmares, but caused them to, it forced them to play more news. But then PIX went away, but I stick, stuck with NEW. So I knew things like Squeeze, and again, Dave Edmonds, Nick Lowe, things like that. But beyond that, no. Only vaguely aware of the sex person. You did not, no interest in going down to the Bowery and seeing what's going on, like flipping through the Village Voice and seeing, uh, you know. Yeah, what... but it wasn't bands. It was more like, I went to Danceteria a lot. I don't know if you remember Danceteria. <laughs> That's Madonna. Um, did you see Madonna yeah. back then? Yeah. No, no, never did. Yeah, we hung out there for a while. But no, a live bands and CBGBs, I, n- I never felt like, you know, making my way through the crowd. So I, I didn't go down there. So no, there was a lot of music. I had no idea when we changed formats at 91X. It was so bizarre. Did you start going to shows? Once yes. This ends, yeah, once yeah. We, once we changed formats, it was, forget it. You it were was, all, uh, all in. Yeah, it was. Uh, we went to every show there was. I mean, we went to see In Excess at a 200-person club when nobody knew who they were. And yes, I did create Mojo Nixon. Thank you. I'm taking credit for it, although I'm not in his new documentary. I'm very upset about that. Oh, wow. Oh. Okay. I okay. just wanted to get your opinion on what the 91X is doing now, and do you like it? So what, what's your opinion of the station? Uh, oh, this is tough. Oh, okay. I'll tell you one thing first. Okay. A few weeks ago, uh, maybe about a month ago, I had to call Garrett um, Michaels. He's, we've known each other for years, so we talk to each other all the time while he's doing And I've really not said anything. For the podcast, Garrett is the PD, correct? Yes, yes. He's the program director of 91X. I have this conversation with Garrett. I'm asking him about a bunch of stuff. At the end of the conversation, he says to me, oh, because it's the 40th anniversary of 91X. That's why we were talking. He wanted me to do a bunch of stuff. I said, no, I'm not doing this. No, I'm not coming down there. I'm not going to be part of your retrospective. Nobody gives a shit about me or anything. I mean, you know, celebrating 40 years at a radio station, it's really kind of ridiculous. Because it kind of makes it all seem very old. Imagine if mm. you had started a radio station at the end of World War II in 1945, and the available music to you at that time was Benny Goodman or whatever else in the 40s. <laughs> but imagine you kept with that format for 40 years. So now it's 1985, and you're celebrating 40 years of playing your format, which <laughs> began at the end of World War II. The difference between the end of World War II and 1985 is rather dramatic, I would say. So put that in perspective. 91X, 40 years ago, 1983. The difference between 83 and 2023? I don't know. You tell me. 
it seems odd that we're even talking about a station that's had a format for 40 years. I think it's incredible and weird. Well, K-Rock's the same way. It is a little bit of that, but some of this music is still, I mean, we're still talking about it. I don't know what the age group is, you know, what they're shooting for. But I mean, if they're, if it's something, if it's like in our age or. I don't know. That's the thing. I gotta figure it out. I don't, I don't think really good ratings are going to come from targeting older demos. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's the play. I'm not sure. But at the end of that, this whole thing, Garrett says to me, Hey, so what do you think Rick Carroll would have thought of the station today? What do you think he would have thought of uh, what we're doing at 91 X? I thought, interesting question. I paused first. No, I didn't pause, actually. I said, <laughs> I said right away, I said, oh, he'd hate it. He'd hate this. Mm. No, he would not like it at all. And Garrett was really kind of like shocked. There was a moment of silence there. He couldn't believe I was actually going to say, yeah, Rick Carroll would have hated this. But he would have, because Rick Carroll did not like the structure of this kind of station. I mean, this is not what the original K-Rock was all about. Right. He was way more, you know, fringy, left of center, to a certain extent, because Rick Carroll had come from Hot Hits Radio. So the reason that K-Rock was structured as kind of a top 40, but for crazy left-wing music, was because he wanted that original top 40 ethos, mm-hmm. right? His idea was that K-Rock was not a leader. Now, this is going to really shock a lot of people. And I used to say this at conventions all the time when people would ask, like, well, you know, You've got all these artists out there and you've got to stay loyal and you've got to show them the line. You have a, a duty and obligation to air these artists, right? Whatever they put out, even if it's crap. It's not how Rick Carroll thought. He was only about the song. If the song was great, they played it. And they played it a lot. But if the song was terrible, he didn't play it. Or if the next album came out, they didn't bother playing it because what they were looking for were the songs. It was all song-based. It was not really artist-based. So, yeah, B-52s, they do have somewhat of a career, but, you know, within the universe of K-Rock, I don't know, it's just another band, but Rick was more about songs than he was artist development. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. Artist development was not a big thing for K-Rock. That, right, okay. So then it was not a big thing for us in San Diego either. But you can't really help it, because once you join the ranks of the the Rebel Alliance, right? Once you join the ranks of the alternative universe, you're drafted into all these other positions. You can't just say, I'm not doing artist development. Well, guess what? You know, when The Cure comes out with a record, we love The Cure, we're playing the next Cure record, we'll find something that's relevant for us because we do believe in a lot of these artists. But the format was never initially set up that way. It was basically, let's find the songs at work and pound the crap out of those. That's what it was. That's what K-Rock was doing in the early days. But continuing to play like The Cure or Depeche Mode, I don't know if I would have thought of it as artist development so much as the station is continuing to follow the artist because the audience wants it, but you're saying it's not. Yeah, I mean, yes. Of course, there's a universe that we discovered. I mean, the reason why 91 K-Rock became so hugely popular, Depeche Mode wasn't being played on the radio. And they were selling a lot of records and people were going to the concerts and it was like early Guns N' Roses. You know, Guns N' Roses was totally ignored. They couldn't get on the radio. Guns N' Roses had no place on radio. It was really tough. And I know this because I worked for the guy that did the promotion for Guns N' Roses at Geffen. Al Corey was the head of Geffen, was screaming at people. Couldn't believe Guns N' Roses could not get airplay 
They did on pirate radio for that short yes. period of time. Yes, yeah. of course, because people like pirate radio are like, yeah, let's look for the songs nobody else is playing. And that's what K-Rock was doing too. But like Guns N' Roses, there, there were all these bands that had followings that were being ignored that we were now paying attention to. Yes, yeah, Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, Depeche Mode, Echo and the Bunnymen, New Order, all of that stuff that had no home anywhere else but selling tons of records, we played. And so we tapped into that audience that was untapped. All right, so you have an opinion or two. We're going to talk about some of these songs. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's just go down the list. I'll all right. give you my, all right. so this, this is my from... one-sentence uh, short attention span review. Okay, very good. So this is from the year is 1986. These are songs 60 to 51. We count them down, just like Casey does. Number 60 is by this band, AHA, and the song is called I've Been Losing You. It wasn't rain that washed away I put, I don't know if you look through the cheat notes. I put when picking new music to play, what matters most, the song or the artist? And apparently you answered that question already, <laughs> but, but tell me, were you even aware that aha went on after their one hit? <laughs> no. Two, come on, no, two, to be fair. So uh, I've never heard the song. The only song that matters is take on me. His take on me. You know, they, they did play the Hollywood bowl. What was it last year? Yes. And they had this documentary. So uh, when they played, did they play Take On Me like seven or eight times? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, they have super fans, and the fans like them no matter what. Yeah. I mean, it's always, there's one song that's the entry to their music. And we all go to that one entry point. Mm -hmm. Some people don't like what they hear when they get through the door, and they go away. And then other people are like, oh, man, that song's great. And it's the entry. For me, it was Sultans of Swing. Dire Straits, way mm -hmm. back when, mm -hmm. was my entry yep. to Dire Straits. And it turns out that all the other music that was not on the radio was unbelievably fantastic. But my entry point yeah. was Sultans of Swing. So, aha, uh -huh, same thing. Uh, just not me. Just not you. Yeah. Don't, don't take on me. No, that's fair enough. Let's keep going. All right. You got to feel something for the next band. All right. So, you must. So this is Pet Shop Boys off their debut album. The song is Love Comes Quickly, the second of three songs on this chart. You can i 
boys. What do you think? Yeah, also a, a one-song band for the most part and not going anywhere in the beginning. K-Rock made the record label. If They forced the record label to work this at radio, and that's what happened. I mean, can you believe it? You know, they didn't – radio didn't even want to touch it, the second track. I mean, even Pet Shop Boys. Pet Shop Boys was something that we played because of K-Rock. K-Rock played it because it was a hit, and Pet Shop Boys – was not what the label was looking at as a hit. <laughs> it's always the way. I think another one-hit one. Not a one-hit. Oh, come on, Max. You're not even thinking about this. I'm thinking about radio. I'm not thinking about anything else. I th- I'm thinking about alternative radio. Did you hear me say- Maybe it's our fault for did, not following up. Did you hear me didn't. say that this is the second of three songs? Did you hear? what? Uh, I mean, there's more than, than there's West End Girls and Opportunities. Yes, opportunity, right? You know, there. I mean, it's I um, because I'm a big I'm a big fan, so I'm. It will be a little skewed. What I offer is a little bit skewed, right? Um, Because you like you like the songs that you've heard beyond what radio's played. What? Yeah, but but radio like so so K Rock did play probably even more than than these three songs. Always on my mind. Uh, yeah, I guarantee they were not played as much as Opportunities and West End. I mean, it was, West End Girls, it, yeah. yeah. It was like a minor rotation, like like a depth track that they would throw in once in a while. Okay, did did you play It's a Sin? Yes. Yeah, we did dabble with that a little bit. Yeah, okay. and it didn't do very well. It's a Sin did not react the way that West End Girls did. They also played the Hollywood, what was it? The Yeah, we saw them at the Hollywood Bowl. So, yeah, West End Girls, Love Comes Quickly, Suburbia, It's a Sin, What Have I Done to Deserve This, Always on My Mind. Number 58, Howard Jones, The Musical Question. You know I love you, don't you? What do you? Anyone? Mueller. Mueller. <laughs> All right. This was one of those. Mueller. Mueller. I mean, Howard he, Jones. He did uh, have some good radio songs. Things we played can, one Howard Jones song. Things can only get better. Yep. Yeah. Yes, that was what we played. And on Block Party Weekend, okay, when we had to play either two or three song sets of an artist, <laughs> we'd pick another song to play, and I don't remember what that song was. We would do two song Howard Jones sets. What is love? What yeah, is what love? is love is big. I thought yes. what is love might have been bigger than. Yeah, than, maybe so. Yeah, it might yeah. Have been, yeah, it's hard to tell. That's that a, without the chart. A bigger There's musical some... question: What is love? <laughs> what is love? <laughs> yeah. Was melody a big thing for you? I mean, as a music director, yeah. it was like, okay, if I if they can hum the song, is this like okay? This is yes. I mean, it's the class. <laughs> you know, there's a joke in the promo. <laughs> um, the people who work records. And the joke is, when you talk to program director, all he wanted to know was, is it fast or slow? That's it. Yeah. So you just got to tell the PD if it was fast or slow, and then the PD would make a decision. That's what I heard. Uh, who was the PD at the time? At the time, um, it was Jim Jolero, Jimmy G. He was from back east also, from Pennsylvania. Right. Then, when John Lynch decided Rick Harrell was not going to be our consultant any longer, we went with Fred Jacobs and changed everything around, 
they got it up their ass that they needed a new program director, and they really did not. You know, Jimmy was doing just fine. We were doing just fine. It was great. But they said, we need a new PD. There's a whole long story behind it, but I wound up becoming the PD. Jimmy stayed at the station and did middays. And then I found another music director. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's sort of happened in the end of 84, I believe. Did you enjoy being the PD? I mean, it's more fun being the music director. And then all of a sudden you got to answer questions as. Uh... Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, there's no roadmap. There's no owner's manual with how to be a program director because th- there's no manual on <laughs> conducting air check sessions with your jocks, right? Plus, you're being elevated from the position where you're a jock and all your friends are jocks, and so you're all on the same level. Well, suddenly, I was promoted to music director and then program director. So now you can't be friends with these people anymore because now you're their boss. But I also didn't know how to handle their talent and constructive criticism and all that kind of stuff. I had to learn very quickly. There's nobody to teach you that stuff. Mm. you got to just learn that. I'm glad I was in that position because... I think that we made common sense decisions about programming that other people wouldn't have made. I think we had some good talent and we utilized that talent, but not everybody would have made those decisions. Um, I was glad I was in that position to do that. But I don't think it was a lot of fun because we're all worried about the numbers. Yeah, We had to worry about yeah. the ratings all the time. And it wasn't even every week as it is now. Yeah. It was every quarter. You know, We had to wait for the book to come out. Yeah, it was it was nerve wracking and it destroyed me. And I left eventually because in addition to everything else, and don't forget, we were broadcasting from a bunker in Tijuana. So we had to drive down to Tijuana every day to do our air shifts. We would leave the studio and we would leave the offices of 91X and drive down 40 minutes south of the border and find our way up this hill with no signs <laughs> and random dead dogs on the corners and find this little cutout that had a cobblestone road that went up a hill. And on the top of the hill was this building, and there's an antenna back there. That's where we broadcast out of. Believe me, going to Tijuana to do an air shift, this is something you tell your grandkids about. This is not something everybody does every day. Go and cross the border to another country to do an air shift. It was pretty unique. So there was a lot of that. And then the final year that I was there, they made me do mornings, which I didn't want to do. Not only that, we had to sign on at 5.30, not 6, which means that we had to meet at the station, get in the minivan at, I don't know, we left San Diego at 4 to make sure that we could get down there by 5.30, and it's not even a long commute. But you had to understand that once you cross that border, you're at the mercy of whatever happens down there, and you're an American citizen, and it's not your country. Let me just say that. You know, and they used to pull over Americans left and right, uh, we got word from you know headquarters that if you ever get stopped by the police or the federales and they ask what you're doing down there, you're on vacation. Do not, under any circumstances, tell them that you work in Tijuana wow. for a radio station because it's not kosher. They don't understand it. It's some weird deal happened to allow greasy Americans like us to broadcast from south of the border. That's a whole different podcast. That's something else. So we were told never to admit that we worked there. You got to understand that this ride back and forth, and then you had the border crossing to deal with, because on the way back, everybody's trying to get across the border. So there were times when, for some unknown reason, the border was light, and we'd zoom back across and get back to San Diego in like a half hour, 40 minutes. 
But most days you get down to the borderline and it was an hour just to get back into the country. And then another 25 minute ride to the station. So my day was very long. It's a hugely long day, 5.30 to like four in the afternoon. It was basically almost a 12 hour day. And and that finally got to me. I couldn't do it anymore. I always wondered about, because Signal doesn't just go to California. It goes into Mexico. Did you ever think about the audience in in Mexico that could hear this? Yeah. 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 And we did have them. I mean, kids came up to the station. They knew where it was. They wanted bumper stickers. We kept piles of bumper stickers by the door of the studio and TJ to give to the kids that would come by. Yes, there was an audience in Tijuana. Definitely so. In fact, in the very early days, because we didn't always like know what lyrics the songs contained, there were a couple of bad eggs. <laughs> and our chief engineer, Eduardo, was also the guardian of all things uh, Mexican FCC. Yes, they have an FCC. <laughs> They're very strict. And they don't like obscenities on the air in any form. We had to be careful about that. There were a couple of times where, with a couple of songs, Eduardo came to me and he goes, hey, uh, I don't think we can play this down there. It's not a good idea. I said, okay, done. Take it out. That's all it took. Oh. Good to have. We all need yeah. an Eduardo in our lives. Yeah, yeah. He, he was great. Yeah. One time, uh, our transmission cable caught fire, and I helped him change the transmission cable. These are things that, again, on my resume, not many people have done. Not many people have stood in the dark holding a flashlight while the chief engineer is holding this coaxial cable that's like, you know, just stick around. You can't tell, but it's huge. It's like the cable to your VCR, but, honey, I blew it up to like 10 times the size. And you're doing the same thing where he's got tin snips and we're cutting it open, exposing the wires, Putting it up there. And by the way, we're off the air this whole time. There were a lot of adventures. Was it a lot of fun at the time? Not necessarily fun, but great experience. I mean, all the things that we have. What an adventure. Unbelievable adventure. But full of hassles, you know. Like, hey, what happens when your new midday guy who's from England, you hire him and he comes down just to see where the station is, right? With the program director and I'm on the air. And the program director brings him in so he knows how to get up to the station the next day. We all have to follow jocks for the first week because you don't know how to get up there. It's all crazy, windy streets with no signs. So if you don't know how to get there, you're fine. So the new English guy that we just hired was brought down to see the studio, check everything out. PD takes him back in his car. They get to the border. And the guy at the gate says, hey, how you doing? What citizen uh, are you country? The standard answer is you just say U.S. and they wave you on your way, right? Don't say anything else. So Jimmy G says U.S. And then the guy looks at Steve West and he goes, what citizen are you country? Steve goes, oh, I'm from the U.K. So the guy goes, oh, great. Can I see your green card, please? Can I see your visa? Steve West is going to have a green card. He's just some crazy Muppet-looking character who was living in North County someplace. So the guy at the border takes his visa and he stamps it denied right there. He takes his visa away, stamps it denied, maybe he returned it to him. And so they were not allowed into the country. So after looking at where he's about to work the next morning, they go back and his car is in San Diego and all his belongings are in his car in San Diego. He's not allowed to re-enter the country. Steve West cannot go back to San Diego. So he had to get himself an apartment down by the bull ring by the sea. 
and he got himself a little apartment and he had to stay there for, I don't know, like almost a year because John Lynch had to get an immigration lawyer to figure out this nonsense. All of a sudden, our new guy cannot leave Mexico to come back to San Diego. He's living in Mexico. <laughs> and he's sitting on the roof of his little tiny apartment. And you know how English people are like white and pasty? And he's a ginger anyway. He got so tan. I've never seen an Englishman this brown in my <laughs> life. He had to fly back to London from Tijuana to go get reinstated in London to then come back to the States to then have the ability for him to go back and forth across the border. It was just crazy how Steve became like a, a local resident of TJ. Guy from England. Just wanted to do an air shift. Couldn't go back to the country. I'm sure he says that's the best year of his life now. Look yeah, at that. Well, he's, now he's dead, but. Well. <laughs> well. Uh, lived well. He lived, lived well. Uh, yes, he did. He lived well and loved well. Okay, number 57, The Bengals, Manic Monday, which, which as you mentioned, you did play, I, I think, a lot, yeah. probably. Good hits from them. I love Manic Monday and Walk Like an Egyptian and everything they did. It was like uh, Go Go's Part Two. So we were fully on board. And the fact that it was by Prince, were you a Prince fan? I wasn't at the time, and Prince had some presence on the station, but not a huge presence. Okay. But yeah, the fact that he was, uh, yes, that he wrote the song. Sure. Yeah. No, I'm kind of curious because uh, actually the song Kiss by Prince kept uh, Manic Monday off the uh, number one spot. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Yeah. Number 56, Bronski Beat. Hit that perfect beat, boy. Is with new singer of Bronski Beat, John Foster, mm-hmm. who replaced Jimmy Somerville. Were you playing a lot of dance music? So no. Where was 9 no, one this, this is where we diverged from K-Rock. Yeah. Because after the ratings went down for us, after 1984, we eliminated a lot of that stuff. Because San Diego was not really a dance market. San Diego was a rock market. So we needed to have more guitars and sound, a.k.a. the Smithereens, you know, at that time. Yeah. Bands like R.E.M., so that whole wing of the format, all that dance music, that's what K-Rock played. That's what K-Rock was into at the, in the middle and end of the 80s. Yeah. 
but you had a UK guy there now who's like into this music probably. Yes. Yes. Our biggest argument was we used to argue about this. Oh my God. It got heated. Steve West wanted to have in our library, regular rotation, Genesis lamb lies down on Broadway. (laughs) His, His rationale was that he would always go, Max, this is a big hit in England. This is the biggest song. Now, Steve, you work in San Diego. Nobody's ever heard of Lamb Lies Down on Broadway here, okay? Mm-hmm. We're not playing a depth Genesis track. We're just not. Forget about it. We go back and forth. This is a multi-day, multi-month, multi-year discussion about Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. <laughs> Did you ever and play so, it? No. <laughs> I played it once. I let Steve play it once during a block party weekend. It was so horrible. I never would have played after that. <laughs> that must have been the longest six minutes of your life. Yeah, it was terrible. Is it I even mean, that short? It's got to be longer than yeah. that. Oh, it's, it's long. Yeah, I don't remember how long it was, but it was just, oh, come on. Okay, what about number 55, General Public? No, yes. English beat, General Public. General Public, probably more poppy. I don't know if uh, that might have yeah. uh, worked more for you. This is too much or nothing. Are the lights so bright that you can't see? This is not the song we played. Right. And this is not any one of the uh, many songs that we played, but I've never <laughs> even heard this song. This is not tenderness. I get it. But uh, I- I'm sure, Holly, you love this song, right? Yeah, I, I had forgotten about the song. You asked Team English Beat or Team General Public. I'm Team English Beat, like General Public, but English Beat to me all the way. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. me too. Did love, I mean, General Public, great songs that everybody loves. Yeah. Uh, Happy. Number 54, Oingo Boingo Stay. Boingo Boingo was big in Southern California. And what is your theory on why Oingo Boingo just was not understood anywhere outside of Southern California? Yeah. Wow. That's the question to ask, isn't it? Well, I mean, they were, it's that Southern California lifestyle. It's sort of like, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers really was a SoCal band before they broke out. And Oingo Boingo, just not understood by a lot of people outside of Southern California. But stations didn't try. There were stations that didn't understand their music, what it was all about. There are a lot of good, you know, like Dead Man's Party now is the standard. That's almost like their biggest hit. And by the way, I was at the outdoor amphitheater in San Diego when they came to play on that tour. Place holds 5,000 people. It's where all the bands came to play that had big audiences. So they played the tour there. And they, for the first time, had played this song called Dead Man's Party. They played it live. So all the seats are bolted securely into the cement slab of the amphitheater, right? 
These seats don't move. They're bolted into the cement. During Dead Man's Party, though, everybody was so nuts. And I was in the front row with my wife. There were people in the front row next to us that pulled the seats out of the cement. They were so bananas, they got the seats <laughs> out of the cement. Pulled them out. Pulled the whole row out. That's how completely nuts it was at that concert. Hmm. But when I go by, I've never seen anything like it since. And that became their, you know, the biggest song theirs of all time. But radio, I think radio could play Dead Man's Party, and they could have, but nobody ever pushed them to the other, like, again, at that point in time, there's only about seven full-time alternative stations. Yeah. And you had some of them, most of them were on the West Coast. Stay was not a huge song, but it was one of my favorite songs of theirs. Okay. I love Stay. I, I kept it in there. It was a song that rotated fairly often, fairly regularly. Because it's got the I, melody. You love melody, Max. That's what I've learned. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, is this one of your favorites? It's the melody, actually. I It's simple, but it still sounds like Oingo Boingo. I, I actually I agree with Max. Yeah. I really like this one. And I, I always, you know, would use as a trivia question. Okay, what was the original name of Oingo Boingo? Pair of tickets to the Depeche Mode show <laughs> for the first person to, with that answer. Somebody would always go, the Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo. Yes, <laughs> grab the tickets. Number 53, Iggy Pop, Real Wild Child. Whatever became Biggie Pop? What's he doing now? He's... I think he works as a busboy at a diner of the Lower East Side. Oh, okay. Yeah, good, <laughs> good to know. And he's like, he's 101, but he's got the body of a buff 30-year-old surfer. Right. <laughs> Which must mean drugs are good. I don't know. Because cotton cannot contain his body. He has to be topless yeah. no matter what, no matter where he goes. I think that's the key. You just got to go topless all the time. Yeah, this guy is 75 now. So Real Wild Child was played. We played a lot of Iggy. As, as you still should, I think. I, I mean, it's yeah. he's, he's playing a number of shows here in L.A. I don't know if he's playing down in San Diego. We're going to yeah. see him. Number 52. You've got quite a 10-song chunk. This is King. The song is Alone Without You. I'm sure I don't you know were, who King is. I don't even know who this band is. You remember Love and Pride? Love and Pride was their big song. No, no it was played on K Rock. This was a big hit. This was a big hit in the UK. It hit number eight in the UK. Yeah. Okay, and you say it was a big hit. You know, this is a thing I tell everybody all the time. Well, what do you mean it's a big hit? By who? Qualify it. On what chart? How many stations played it? What qualifies as a hit? You know, and people, they don't have the facts and they don't know. They just think it's a big hit when it really wasn't. That 
you know, what you're talking about. Might have been a big hit in England. I don't know about hit potential in this country. Right. I've never heard of them, so Love and that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean anything. I, I've just never heard of them. Yeah, Love and Pride was uh, was kind of like the take on me. At, uh, uh, I believe it got like, yeah. in the, it was in the top, like, pop pop chart, like top 10 of... Uh, in, wow. in like 85, okay. something like Maybe you know Paul King as uh, he was a host on MTV. He was a VJ yeah. in, in 89. You didn't see the video. It's dudes with mullets on scooters. Oh, yeah. Did you, what was your hair, Max? What did you do with your hair in the, in the 91X days? I know what it is now. We can clearly <laughs> see that. When That's did, where it was then, too. <laughs> After I came out to San Diego and I got a little apartment and it was August of 82 and it was just a rock station. Then we changed. Right as we changed format, it was like, the new format demanded an entirely new attitude. Everything had to be new, and I just decided I don't want my hair in What a pain in the ass. So one day, I just literally went to uh, the nearest strip mall by my place, and there was like, a, I think it was a Supercuts. Yeah. And I walked in to the Supercuts. Hey, how you doing? What can we do for you today? I'd like you to shave my head. I want to take off all my hair. Have you ever done bald guys before? You ever done? And they're like, they looked at each other. I don't think anybody ever came in asking to have their head shaved. I might have been the first one. Nice. They Did said, they have to check oh. your mental stability? Yeah, I think so. I think they've given me the eye. They, I think they thought I was really weird, but they did it and uh, shaved it all off. Not skin because they didn't do that then. They just took it all the way down to like level one. So I looked like I had just come from jail and my head was all like blue and, you know, freshly exposed skin. <laughs> it looked disgusting. It looked really gross. Mm. I had to get my head tan so it matched the rest of my face at least. Right some color and I wound up using uh, some skin bronzer that never looked right. It looked like an orange head or something. Orange. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I shaved my head like in 84 and that was it. Nice. Uh, and I never looked back. We gotta get out of here. Last song. Come on. Okay, number 51, Fine Young Cannibals Suspicious Minds, a great song by Elvis and I think just a great, great cover. We're caught in the trap I can't walk out Because I love you too much, baby Why can't you see What you're doing to me When you don't believe What I say I hope you played this song. I hope you love this. This is, and also, Bronski, <laughs> Jimmy Somerville, who had left Bronski beat, is now singing background vocals on this song. Suspicious Cannibals. Yes. Love them. This song, never heard of. Oh, come on. Really? Oh, you're killing me. But we this played the name of the other songs that were all hits. We played them all. She Drives Me Crazy is probably the one yes. that you know. Yes. Yeah. Go on. Keep going. And, and Give me some other hits. Uh, good thing. Good thing. Oh, yes. yeah. Good thing. Right. Those are the key tracks. And, this thing that's on here, I've never heard of. Okay. Do you know Elvis Presley? Have you ever heard of that guy? He sang this yeah. song. He did this. I, I didn't follow him much either. We're caught in a trap. <laughs> you can't walk I like out. Only Fools Fall in Love and uh, a little more action, a little less talk. All that's right. all I know Okay. About. Well, this was a 70s Elvis song, but eh, fine. Whatever. We didn't make these decisions in a vacuum. It wasn't just me. It was me, the music director. We had some other people that would be part of the music meetings. 
So it wasn't just me going, ah, that sucks, we're not playing it. <laughs> you know, everybody got to weigh in on what we thought was going to work for people. So that's what we had to do is sort of take everybody's opinion into account. And so some of these other tracks just didn't make it. What was I, the other, what, do you have any songs left? I, we are, songs? we are done, Max. Everything you gave us is great. I love, I loved it all. I'm just getting like, we could probably talk for another three hours about that. We could, but Holly would be very bored. <laughs> no, very I love bored. radio as much as, oh. very much. Spoken, spoken like a true innocent neophyte. <laughs> keep that innocence. Don't ever lose it. I, why do you think I keep Holly? Because she, she brings sunshine to everything we, we do here. Max, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much for doing Thank it. Thank you. You guys have been great, too. I really like this a lot. It was fun. Okay, long chat with Max. Did you enjoy that? What's not to enjoy? He's an entertaining guy. We talked about the music. We talked about his career. Everything we're interested in. Yes. Right? I think so. Hopefully the listeners are, too. <laughs> oh, is this about the listeners? I thought it was just about what we might be interested in. Well, that's why we do this podcast. It's what we're interested in. So and we're interested in Max. So Max is interesting to us. We assume that he's interesting to you. I mean, he didn't disappoint. He did not disappoint. And uh, you can find outtakes from this uh, talk with Max on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast and also on our other social media at WDDIM Podcast. Get it in those uh, those little morsels, little Max morsels. Mm, Max morsels. Yum, 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 yum. Okay, <laughs> let's wrap this up. Thank you for joining us. Uh, please subscribe uh, on your favorite podcast platform. We are a proud member of Pantheon Podcasts. So until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.